Thank you for staying tuned to WRGC 88.3 FM. Ahead at 8, we present new letters on the air. And then at 8.30, our local storytelling program, Stories from the Market. Coming up next on New Letters on the Air... Edward Hirsch, guest editor of the Best American Poetry 2016, has strong opinions. The reader had been, I felt, neglected in our thinking through how poetry works. Because I think there is no poetry without readers to read poetry. Author of How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry, Edward Hirsch shares some of his own poems on the next New Letters on the Air. You're listening to WRGC 88.3 FM, a broadcast service of Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university. A poet, a MacArthur genius, and now the president of the Guggenheim Foundation, Edward Hirsch often turns to the past for inspiration. All of the poetry behind us is available to us and in all different languages. They carry a kind of knowledge, a kind of information you can't get anywhere. So why not go to them? Prepare to be inspired as this author of the best-selling book, How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry, shares some of his own knowledge and reads from his book, The Living Fire, New and Selected Poems, today on New Letters on the Air, a production of New Letters magazine at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. I'm Angela Elam, and I talked with Edward Hirsch when he was at Rockhurst University's Fall Midwest Poet Series after the release of The Best American Poetry 2016. David Lehman chose him as the guest editor, not just because of his skills as a judge, teacher, and author of nine poetry and five prose books, but because when basketball star Kobe Bryant announced his retirement with a poem, Lehman's mind jumped to the hookshot in the 1986 award-winning book, Wild Gratitude. Here's Edward Hirsch with the story behind that one-sentence poem, Fast Break. I was teaching at Wayne State University in Detroit, my first teaching job, my closest friend was someone named Dennis Turner, who taught film. And Dennis and I played pickup basketball together. And one day, he had a stomach ache, and he had intense pain, and we took him to the hospital. And he went in with intense pain, and when he came out, it looked as if he had a diagnosis of primary liver cancer, which it turns out that he had. And we were driving back from the hospital. I'd picked him up. He said, listen, if I have liver cancer and I die, you owe me a poem. <laughs> so I said, well, that's some assignment. Not that glad to hear about it. And he said, could you try not to make it too romantic? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was super funny. Yeah. Um, so anyway, after Dennis did die, I was heartbroken. And over the course of the year, I felt I had this task to write a poem. I really didn't know what to write about and how to do it. And I got the idea, because we'd played so much basketball together, of writing an elegy for him about basketball. And then I also had the idea in this poem that I would model the poem on a play in basketball. Rather than writing a sonnet or a sestina or a villanelle, I would try and see if you could make a sentence that would model something in sports, which I hadn't seen before. And so I got the idea of trying to run a single sentence that would unfold like a fast break. And it took me so long to figure that out that I kind of forgot about Dennis. And then over the course of the poem, as you see, I think the poem is about basketball, but it also becomes an elegy. And I would say that's what's 
characteristic of it. It is a play in basketball, but it's also an elegy for my friend. Well, let's hear you read it. Fast break, in memory of Dennis Turner, 1946 to 1984. A hookshot kisses the rim and hangs there helplessly but doesn't drop. And for once our gangly starting center boxes out his man and times his jump perfectly, gathering the orange leather from the air like a cherished possession and spinning around to throw a strike to the outlet who was already shoveling an underhand pass toward the other guard, scissoring past a flat-footed defender who looked stunned and nailed to the floor in the wrong direction, trying to catch sight of a high gliding dribble and a man letting the play develop in front of him in slow motion, almost exactly like a coach's drawing on the blackboard, both forwards racing down the court the way that forwards should, fanning out and filling the lanes in tandem, moving together as brothers, passing the ball between them without a dribble, without a single bounce hitting the hardwood, until the guard finally lunges out and commits to the wrong man, while the power forward explodes past them in a fury, taking the ball into the air by himself now and laying it gently against the glass for a layup, but losing his balance in the process, inexplicably falling, hitting the floor with a wild, headlong motion for the game he loved like a country and swiveling back to see an orange blur floating perfectly through the net. That's so wonderful. I mean, it has that feeling of fast movement in sports, and yet you're doing honor to him. That's the poem Fast Break by Edward Hirsch, and it was originally from his book Wild Gratitude, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award when it came out back in 1986. And it's now in The Living Fire, New and Selected Poems, which covers your career. Mm -hmm. I have to ask, the poem that precedes this in the book, Omen, was that about him as well? Yes. The poem Omen was the first poem that I wrote after I got the assignment and Dennis was sick in the hospital. But after he died, I realized the poem was wildly romantic. And so it didn't fulfill the assignment. But yes, it's also about Dennis. I love the fact that it's juxtaposed to Fast Break. Was it actually juxtaposed in Wild Gratitude as well? It was. That was my idea. I mean, the omen, it's not really about Dennis. It's about my own grief that my closest friend is going to die. It's a kind of pre-elegy. Fast Break, which is a later poem, a cooler poem really, I mean emotionally cooler, is more objective, and he's already died, and it really does become about him. This is about my own grief. That's why I felt I had another poem to write. Did your friend Dennis get to see Omen? No, he was too. He didn't want that kind of poem anyway. He didn't so. want that kind of poem anyway, but really, it was he was very sick. I mean, the yeah. knowledge in the poem is he's going to die, Yeah. and I was just grief-stricken. Can we hear that one, too? Sure, my pleasure. I lie down on my side in the moist grass, and drift into a fitful half-sleep, listening to the hushed sound of wind in the trees. The moon comes out to stare, glassy, one-eyed, but then turns away from the ground, smudged. It's October and the nights are getting cold. The sky is tinged with purple, speckled red. The clouds gather like an omen above the house, 
and I can't stop thinking about my closest friend suffering from cancer in a small airless ward in a hospital downtown. At 37, he looks boyish and hunted, fingered by illness, scared. When I was a boy, the summer nights were immense, clear as a country lake, pure, bottomless. The stars were like giant kites casting loose. The fall nights were different, school-bound, close, with too many stormy clouds, too many rules. The rain was a hammer banging against the house, beating against my head. Sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of a cruel dream, coughing and lost, unable to breathe in my sleep. My friend says the pain is like a mule kicking him in the chest again and again until nothing else but the pain seems real. Tonight the wind whispers a secret to the trees, something stark and unsettling, something terrible, since the yard begins to tremble, shedding leaves. I know that my closest friend is going to die, and I can feel the dark sky tilting on one wing, shuddering with rain, coming down around me. The poem Omen from The Living Fire, New and Selected Poems by Edward Hirsch. And this is New Letters on the Air. One of my friends taught this poem recently, and he said, my class loved it. Super pathetic fallacy. So that was really (laughs) funny. I don't know if you know what the pathetic fallacy is, but the pathetic fallacy is something that John Ruskin termed in the 19th century in which the poet projects his feelings onto nature. And here, that's absolutely the case. It's not like Victorian poetry. In this case, I think it's more like tribal poetry, archaic poetry. The whole world is grieving with you, and you project it into the seasons, into the fall of how now the season is coming down around you in your grief. And Omen is in that state of being grief-stricken. Fast Break is more of a celebration. It's something later. And I really had an assignment now not to make it too heated not to make it too romantic, to write something for him. And basketball seemed to be the way to do that. Yeah. Well, I love the fact that you just explained pathetic fallacy. I did know what it was. But, you know, for people who wouldn't know what it was, you have a wonderful book called A Poet's Glossary. And I'm sure if I looked up pathetic fallacy, I'd find it in there. Yeah, it's there. I wish people could see it. It's over 700 pages. But it's really a wonderful dictionary of literary terms for the poet. And I believe this book came after you got the MacArthur Genius Fellowship, right? Yes, much later. It is such a huge work, as is How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry, which also came out after you got the MacArthur. I just wondered if that freed you up to be able to work on this, or were you already working on it in your academic life? I mean, the MacArthur really helped me Tremendously, especially because How to Read a Poem was already finished when I had gotten the MacArthur, but it really helped me with the advocacy of it because people said, well, now a genius wants to help us (laughs) read poetry. (laughs) But Poets Glossary is not related to the MacArthur. What's really happened is I wrote How to Read a Poem for both initiated and uninitiated readers. And at the last minute, my editor convinced me to put in a glossary, which he thought would be helpful, of specific poetic terms. I was very reluctant to do it because I really tried in the book to write the book without specialized terms, but sometimes you need them. I mean, sometimes you need to describe a meter or what a metaphor is. And so I put this in the back of the book, just using the terms that had come up in How to Read a Poem, just the terms that are in that book. 
And then it turned out that this part of the book, the glossary, is one of the most widely used part of how to read a poem because many people teach how to read a poem. I didn't mean it to be a book that was particularly taught. I meant it to be a book for readers to help uninitiated and initiated readers understand more about poetry and to go more deeply into how poems work. But the glossary was really helpful to teachers. And then the teachers began saying to me, but there are certain terms that are not here. And it wasn't meant to be a definitive glossary. It was just meant to be the terms I had, but it began to weigh on me. And so over time, I got the idea, well, wouldn't it be interesting to try and do all the terms, to do a kind of encyclopedia of terms, and to try and make the book more international instead of just American terms from American and English poetry to see what you could do if you actually did as many languages as you could manage. And the problem of it just began to absorb me. And so I began to work on it. It took me a long time, but I really liked the work on it. And I began to put in a lot of things that I'd never seen in other dictionaries before about poetry, especially internationally. There's a lot in my book about tribal poetries, about Latin American and African and Slavic poetries, Greek and Latin as well. Anyway, I just found that the universe of poetry is very rich and very wide, and every culture has a poetry. So it began to really stimulate me to see what I could do, and this is the result. Yeah. I'm talking with Edward Hirsch today on New Letters on the Air, by the way. Well, I think it's wonderful because one of the things that you do in a poet's glossary, and you certainly do it in How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry, is that you are considering, you said the initiated and the uninitiated, but you're also considering the poet and the reader. You reach out to the reader as much as you do to other poets. Oh, much more. In fact, you've hit on the basic premise of the book. How to Read a Poem is not written from the point of view of the writer. It's written from the point of view of the reader and that I stand in for the reader. And the basic premise of that book, as you know, is that poetry does not have its meaning unto itself, that poetry has its meaning in the relationship that's established between the poet, the poem, and the reader in a kind of relationship or connection. And I read a lot of poems, but I also try to think through what that relationship is and how poetry works. And that the reader had been, I felt, neglected in our thinking through how poetry works. Because I think there is no poetry without readers to read poetry. And the poem sort of has its meaning when it's actualized in the reader. So I take the role of the reader throughout the book. It's really a reader's book. Yeah, and I think that's what made it. I read that it was a bestseller after it came out. I had a feeling that there was an audience of people. I mean, you have to be of goodwill. You have to have some interest in poetry. Otherwise, this book is not going to appeal to you. But if you have some interest in poetry, but you'd been turned away in some way, you thought it was too difficult for you, or you thought you couldn't understand it, you thought it was too academic, I had a feeling there were a lot of people like that. And that what these readers, they didn't know a lot about poetry, but they didn't want to be condescended to. And I felt that if I could reach out to these readers, that I would find an audience. But it also had to be accurate for poets. So the poets also recognized what you were talking about, that you hadn't in any way dumbed it down or simplified it, but that you had sort of gone a long way in a kind of democratic way to make the case on behalf of the reader. And so my book begins with readers reading poems, that as the reader, what is your contact? How do you read it? 
And my idea is that if you begin with a kind of naked contact with the poem as the reader, eventually all the subjects, all the themes of poetry would deliver themselves to you. And that's sort of how it unfolded. I love too, and you do this in your poetic work as well as the nonfiction, how you bring examples or make allusions to other poets. And yet, especially in the nonfiction, you're right, you don't do it in a condescending way. It's kind of an opening, a window for people to climb through and into the world of literature. I think if you're taught poetry in a certain way, it's as if the Norton Anthology wrote all the poems. And it just kind of blurs for you, and it's just an academic exercise. But when you live with poetry, the poets are sort of part of your extended family. And if you think of them as people who wrote poems, and you know more about them, then it's sort of like, these are some odd aunts and uncles that I've got here in the history of poetry, and some of them come in different languages. And so because poetry means so much to me, and because I've spent so much time with these poets— I call upon them in a somewhat familiar way. I think that's part of your experience. So in my own poems and in my writing about poetry, I don't pretend that other poets don't exist. In fact, I do call upon them quite a lot to help guide me, but not in an academic way, not in a cold way, but in like, let's see how they can help us understand these poems and think through our experience. Yeah. It's how you continue to have, as one poet I interviewed recently— The Irish poet Sinead Morrissey said that she likes to think of herself as having a conversation with other poets, you know, whether they're still living or not. It's conversing with them through her work. And I thought, you certainly do that. That's very much the case. Well, let's have a poem where you're conversing with another poet. Let's skip ahead in The Living Fire. You have a whole section in one of your later books that refers to a lot of myths. I like this one. It's from the Hades sonnets Mm -hmm. because it also pulls in some ancient work but puts it in a context with your father. It's called the forgetfulness chair. In Lay Back the Darkness, I'd written some poems trying to get at things that I just hadn't been able to write about. And I thought, well, what happens if I try and go through some classical stories? I especially love book six of the Aeneid, where Aeneas goes down into the underworld to see his father one last time. And there's that heartbreaking encounter where he tries to embrace his father, but his father's smoke. He can't hold his body. And I love Dante's Inferno. And I just wanted to see what would happen if I started to see if I could get at something that I wasn't able to write about. For whatever reasons, I'm not really sure. But these stories opened up something for me. And so the Hades sonnets, those poems all about going into the underworld, just offered me something, and I just decided to follow it. And in this one particular, it goes through a classical story, but you'll hear how personal it is in my getting at something about my father. The forgetfulness cheer. My obstinate, self-absorbed, courageous father shuffling across the living room floor to the determined chair in the far corner where my mother covered him with a blanket and he promptly dozed off and woke up later without knowing where he'd awakened, was Perithus slipping into the underworld through the open gate at Tynarum to abduct Persephone, the queen of death, while Hades, the unseen one, 
coaxed him into sitting down on the chair of Leith, the stony black seat of forgetfulness, where he forgot why he had entered hell and never found his way back to the living. That's the forgetfulness chair from the Hades sonnets that was originally included in Edward Hirsch's book, Lay Back the Darkness, and is now in his new and selected poems called The Living Fire. And you're listening to him today here on New Letters on the Air. I was really grappling with my father's Alzheimer's and his dementia and his pacing. And I didn't know how to think about it and I didn't know how to write about it but I was tormented by it. And the story of Parathis came back to me. And I thought, what would happen if I try and write about Parathis? And that's how these two things came together. My father's dementia and the classical Greek story of Parathis, who thinks he's going to outwit death and isn't able to. And the forgetfulness chair that he sits in struck me as a tremendous metaphor for a kind of dementia. It's a wonderful metaphor. And I think something that so many people can identify with because dementia is a very... It's brutal. Brutal is the right word for it. That's very touching. You have a whole section of the Hades sonnets where you explore different myths and relate them. When you're working on a poem, especially when you're looking at something that's very personal in your life, like you just described, how do I approach yeah. this? In this particular time, were you already working on some poems that had to do with Greek myths, or did it just come up and you gathered them together into the Hades sonnets? It usually comes from desperation. <laughs> I mean, you just can't figure out what to do. And you're trying hard and you just keep bucking your head against something, you can't get it right. And many people see these ancient myths as something academic or something to study, but I believe they carry a kind of wisdom. They carry a kind of truthfulness to you. And by sometimes going through myths, you can get at something that you find hard to get at otherwise. That if you give yourself to the myth, it's not an academic exercise, but it can be a personal one. And that's what happened in some of these poems. And the idea of making them one-sentence sonnets, which is the one I just read you, was stimulating to me. I thought it's interesting to see if you can make the syntax operate through across 14 lines with one sentence. It has a kind of rush, but it also has a kind of archetypal form. Yeah. And again, this shows us you having a conversation with things that have come before, too. I mean, many people think of this as very literary or academic, but it's never seemed that way to me. I love the moment in Dante's Inferno where he calls on Virgil to help him. He's going to travel down into the underworld, and he needs a guide. Now, of course, he's his own guide in a way because Virgil's long dead. But in a way, it's saying, look, help me. I'm trying to write an epic. And I need an epic that's come before me to help me. And so, in a way, the Inferno relies on the Aeneid. And that's always been moving to me because there's something abject about it. Because Dante says, look, I can't do this all myself. I need some help. I need some structure. And I've always found that the poetry of the past, which intimidates some people, is available to us that way. And sometimes... It will inhibit you, but sometimes it's available to you and it enables you to do something that is just too hard to do on your own. 
And so you call upon some beloved immortal, some poet from the past, someone you've befriended, even though you don't know personally, to help guide you through something. And that's what happened in these poems. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. You use the world as your toolbox. You know, Ezra Pound once said all poets are contemporaneous. And many young poets now are not interested in the poetry of the past. They're only interested in poets writing now. But I've always felt that all of the poetry behind us is available to us and in all different languages. And that they carry a kind of knowledge, a kind of information you can't get anywhere. So why not go to them? No, sometimes they don't help you. There are great poets who I love to read but don't help me at all, who put me off. There's great poets who I admire but don't connect to. But there are also poets that you feel are yours, and they can be very stimulating to you. And I'm always encouraging young poets to find their own poets out of the canon, to find other poets from the past who speak to them, and that I think that can help you in your own work. Definitely. Did this come to play at all when you were reading through all the literary magazines searching for who you wanted to include in Best American Poetry 2016? I mean, because you must have read. Do you even have any idea of how many? (laughs) It was painful. It's hard to think about. I read all the magazines for a year, but I should confess, I read all the poetry in all the magazines. I can't, you know. You only have so much time. I just wasn't reading all the prose. I'm sorry to report. (laughs) But yes, I was reading all the poems. And well, I mean, I don't think you're looking for the poetry of the past. You're looking for something that happens in language. But I mean, were you looking for poets who recognize that relationship? I guess not, because in the foreword, you were talking about there were just some poems that you read, and then later they stuck with you. So it could have been a turn of a phrase. You know, I happen to like forms, and I happen to like shapes, and I think something has to happen in language. So I was looking for poets, not because of their references or allusions to poets of the past, but I believe a poet is a maker, and a poem is a made thing. And I was called to poems that have been shaped and that have been made into something. But even then, I wouldn't say that was the defining feature. What you're looking for is something indeterminable that you can't forget, that something is at stake for the writer that then becomes at stake for the reader. I would say what characterized most of these poems in the best American poetry is that something is at risk. There's some experience that the writer cares about, small or large, but it really matters to her or to him. And then it's been transformed and grappled with in poetry. It's been shaped, it's been turned linguistically so that something happens on the page when you read it. And the poems that I found myself going back to after reading, you know, thousands and thousands of poems, sometimes I put them aside because I knew who the poet was. Sometimes I put it aside because I was just interested in what it was. Sometimes I thought the subject was interesting. But the ones that stayed with me, were that something seemed seriously to be worked out by the poet, and then something had happened. It wasn't prepackaged. Something was being thought through in front of you as the forms were instruments of discovery. And that's what I was looking for, poems that were trying to discover something that was meaningful. There's so much fooling around in contemporary poetry now. There's so much noise that I was looking for things that really had some substance. Now, sometimes they're funny, and many of the poems made me laugh, but something's happening. Something's at stake. 
they're on some level transformative. That's right. Well, you know, we were very thrilled to see that Deborah Marquardt's poem made it in there that was published in New Letters. And then Michelle Boisseau, who teaches on yeah. the UMKC campus, she had a poem in there. So I, it was I love fun. both of those poems. Michelle's poem really begins with that story about George Eliot and goes on to the root of the word ugliness, and it thinks through ugliness, and then it transforms into how George Eliot had a kind of beauty. But it also thinks through how something seemingly ugly can be beautiful. And Deborah's poem is a remarkable ode to North Dakota. It's called Lament. And it's funny because it addresses North Dakota and say, North Dakota, what are they doing to you? But it's also <laughs> extremely poignant. I didn't know another poem like that, that a poem that speaks to a state and that yet brings into a kind of tremendous political dimension of what people are doing in terms of the boom, the oil boom in North Dakota. It's a very original poem of social engagement. But it also was funny to me because it was like, oh, my poor North Dakota, what are they doing to you? And it speaks to North Dakota as if North Dakota is a person. And that's the nature of the ode. Edward Hirsch on the Best American Poetry 2016 while at Rockhurst University's Midwest Poets Series. 2017 marks his election as a lifetime member into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. We'll hear more in an upcoming show about his book-length ode to his late son, Gabriel. For links to recent books and an archived 1991 interview, visit newletters.org. A production of New Letters Magazine at UMKC, today's show was produced with May Megan Schwindler, Danny Moran, Blake Elizondo, Mackenzie Callahan, and Jamie Walsh. I'm Angela Elam for New Letters on the Air. Thank you for tuning in to Stories from the Market, a program of people sharing the threads that bind us together in the tapestry of life. Stories from the Market is a broadcast companion to the monthly storytelling concert series put on by storyteller Jeanette Waddell in the Milledgeville Allied Arts. In this episode of Stories from the Market, we're going to feature stories from two recent storytelling concerts in the Allen's Market. We'll begin tonight with a story from the market's resident vocalist, Sherry Morrison. She shares the story, The Second Time Around, about finding the courage to believe in yourself and make your dreams come true, even when it is the second time around. From the Allen's Market in downtown Milledgeville, Sherry Morrison with the story, The Second Time Around. I grew up backwoods of Oklahoma as a little duck puddle in the road. If your tire splashed too hard, you, you won't even know it's there. Uh, my mama was a twin. She could go very white deep. And her twin sister can go up to the rafters. Uh, so here we are children singing with these two 
and they would lean down and say, I can't hear you. Open your mouth. Open your mouth, I can't hear you. So you learn to, as folks back then called it, project. And now it just be called very loud singing. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I went to the Pacific Northwest and was living there. And you know, you go here and you sing, you go there, you do this, you do that. And I grew up in one of those critical families. You know, if your note wasn't right, five or six people are gonna tell you. Uh, if you miss a word or this and that, five or six people are gonna tell you. So I look at performing and those types of things along those lines and trying to learn to loosen up. But after a while, I started wondering, I'm the youngest and you compare things even though you say you don't want to. It's like, well, I wonder how I really line up with professionals. Professionals, people that travel, do this, you know. Could I sit in among them and they go, shh, girl, mm 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 mm. I just wanted to see. So, found out that there was, at that time, it was 1999, two all acoustic workshops and festivals in the whole United States. One in Ohio, one in Washington. Took the ferry over and, you know, unless you like blues, you won't know who any of these people are, but you had the John Jacksons and the, Joe Turner and the Rick Mitchells and you know used to play with uh, Rod Stewart and all of these people I mean they're there <clears throat> I sat in amongst them uh, if you ever saw Offer Center Gentleman it's where Richard Gere's character and Lou Gossick's character have a fight that was where the festival was going to be held so I sit in there, go to this workshop, that workshop, and professors, or not professors, instructors started sending for me, and one of them, he was, at that time he was 79. He said, you're pretty good, sitting there in his tortoise sunglasses, his little fedora and silk suit. You're pretty good, I haven't heard anything from you. It's like, well, I'm just not there yet. So he says, you gotta do something. Got to do something. Just do a CD. No matter where you go, what you do, some old nobody, some old know-it-all will be in there and they'll say, oh, well, she can't play. Just play. Just play. And uh, my guitar got killed. Uh, uh, I killed it. Uh, putting it in tunings, it wasn't built to hold, so I killed it. Uh, had to start over with another guitar. Had to do this. Had to do that. And life got in the way and I walked away from everything, quit singing, quit performing. Uh, met Jeanette, started back again. But this time it's different because the man that I'm talking about, John Jackson, passed in 1908, uh, in the year 2000. So 17 years later, a conversation we had a year before that, he passed. And from going back, starting over with music, you know, everything, starting over. Just like I was a young kid with nothing, starting over at this age, it's been very difficult. And from a weird chain of events, I got another guitar. So there I'm sitting at home, telling myself how terrible I am at guitar. And I'm sitting here, trying to line out all of this. And you know what happened? I realized that this man that was telling me just play, 
pick a guitar, play just strong, pick here and there, nobody will know about, nobody will care. I would not play because I compared what I produced with what he produced. And I even heard him say, people go around playing our songs note for note, word for word. We don't want to hear that. We did that. You do what you do. And uh, to stop myself and try to talk myself off the ledge because the very man that told me these things is the very man that I'm using to prevent me from doing what he said I should do in the first place. So here I sit guitar at home. I didn't want to have to try to come up with any psychiatrist dollars for anybody for the trauma. <laughs> but coming here pretty soon, you will see Sherry and guitar. I won't say how good it's going to sound. I won't say how bad it's going to sound, but you will see Sherry and guitar. <laughs> That was Sherry Morrison sharing the story the second time around. Up next, we'll look back to a story shared in February 2017 during a storytelling concert themed Celebrating the Heroes We Love. In this story, Vicki Glover shares lessons passed down from an earlier generation. Audience members in the Milledgeville area will be treated to a better understanding of the contribution of two local icons, Wilkes and Lavinia Flagg a leading family of 19th century Milledgeville and the founders and namesakes of Flag Chapel Baptist Church in downtown Milledgeville. Sharing the story, Molecular Memories of Love and Freedom, this is Vicki Glover. This is a collaborative piece because although my mom is not standing here <laughs> at this time, she did write this, and um, I'm going to build on what it is that she has written, and that's one of the most powerful things um, that she's ever taught me was to make sure that you are a effective piece of the fraction. She always talks about the fractions of the whole, and so I'm going to start off with the piece, and then I'm going to go into another piece. I give thanks and praise to all my ancestors for all that they experienced, all that they worked, hoped, and dreamed of for this generation and the generations to come. As their descendant, I am charged to continue the legacy of Sentinel, not just for my family, but also for my community. It is in my DNA to work to find solutions to the problems and evils that plague our society. It is my duty to take up the sword of truth and justice, hard work and perseverance, integrity and righteousness, and press forward. I am because they were, and would not be able to enjoy the pleasures of this time had they, had they not worked for a better experience. Because we are all the manifestation of the blood, the sweat, the tears, and the prayers and the actions of our ancestors. I am Vicki Glover, and I am extremely honored to stand before you to tell, you, to tell a story. I call it Molecular Memories of Love and Freedom. You see, the activist lineage within me stretches for generations. 
Those who love their families, their community, and freedom enough work tenaciously to provide better opportunities and ways of life for everyone can be traced back to slavery in my family. And if I could trace it further, I imagine that I could find it in the indigenous people of America who we call the Indians, as well as the royals of Africa. So the blood that oozes through my veins won't allow me to be anything other than what I am. Every atom in my body pulsates to a rhythm of deep love. And where there is deep love, there is great sacrifice. Love defined. What is this thing we call love? How much thought have we given it? What do we know about it? Are there different kinds? Or is that the expression, or is it that the expression of love is different depending on the object of our affection? Have you ever really given serious thought to the meaning of love or freedom? Have you ever wondered if there were different kinds of love, the love a parent has for a child, or the love a child has for his dog, a husband for his wife, or the mother for her children, the love the gardener has for her vegetables? We all know other examples of love. Have you considered that love is an expression? It is an action word, a verb, and it matters not the object of what is loved, where there is love, there is evidence. Have you ever pondered if one can give that which he or she does not have? I have. This story is about Wilkes Flag, a man who loved not only his wife, his son, and his community, but also freedom. We know that he loved freedom because he worked long, late nights and weekends to purchase his freedom and that of his family. He was a blacksmith by trade and served as head waiter at the state capitol. At that time, it was Milledgeville, Georgia. And my grandfather, Wilkes Flagg, actually, his, uh, at the time he was a slave to Thomason Fort. They came from Virginia um, to Georgia. To, uh, they came from the Lamar Plantation. And he came with his mother, Sabina, his wife, Lavinia, and his son, Wilkes Flagg, Jr. And um, my grandfather was actually, um, they, they offered him freedom, manumission at the time, and he refused. He purchased his freedom and the freedom of his wife and his, and his child and his mother. My grandfather was, when we talk about this thing called love, and we talk about the love of your family, but he also had a love for freedom, for liberty. He had a love for the land. He had a love for his wife. My grandma Lavinia was uh, the confidant. They both worked during the time that Cobb was, uh, Governor Cobb was the governor here in Milledgeville. And my grandmother was the confidant of his wife, which is a very strange thing during that time when you consider um, the politics of that time. And so just the fact, it, it tells you a lot about their character. He and his wife, uh, after they were free, they traveled up north. And once they got back, they were enslaved again. And some kind people, it is said in a newspaper article, actually um, purchased their freedom again. And he went on and he, purchased, he leased um, several hundred acres of land so that other 
uh, uh, people that were enslaved could also come and work that land and so that they would have a sense of stability, a place that they could call home. And he also established Flag Baptist, Flag Chapel Baptist Church. He was a Baptist minister here. And he went on to establish a school. And later, the Freedmen's Bureau came and they took, they collaborated with him and they took over the school. Um, but that goes to just the love of education. Uh, and I am a product of that because I'm an educator as well. And my mother is an educator coming from my grandmother who was an, an educator as well. My love for reading, my love for my ancestors. My mother has always made certain to make sure that we were filled with a love and a respect for our elders, for the land, and for the people. As an activist, she's always made sure that we walked with integrity. Although at one point in my life, I'm sure she was quite a bit, she was concerned. <laughs> but she always was patient with me because love is patient. And although I don't know my great-grandfather, I never met my great-grandfather. I did meet my, uh, one of his great-granddaughters, my great-grandmother, Della May Flagg. And I can still see her. And so when I talk about these molecular memories, I know that the love that was extended from her and that was given, that was extended to my grandmother, Benny Mae Flagg-Webb, was extended to my mother who then extended that to me. And I extended that to my son, and then my son gave, uh, brought my granddaughter forward. And so when we talk about this uh, love, the love that they had for each other, it crossed time. The prayers that he had for freedom, for liberty, it crossed time. And I am the manifestation of that love that they had for each other, and the love that they had for freedom the love that he had for liberty, and the fact that the church still stands. We talk about the evidence of love. That love is there. When I speak about that and the charge that I have to continue his legacy, to continue the legacy of Wilkes and Lavinia Flagg, and this a poem that I shared because my another great-grandfather that I have, Henry Hunt, he transitioned Fort Valley from the high school to the school. And uh, a couple of years ago, we were uh, invited <laughs> by Miss Womack, and um, I had an opportunity to share the stage with Julian Bond. And this poem called God's Minute um, really spoke to me, and it talks about my purpose, all of our purpose, the purpose that we all have in being here. And it's like, I have only just a minute. Only 60 seconds in it. Didn't seek it, didn't choose it, but it's up to me to use it. I must suffer if I lose it. Give account if I abuse it. Just a tiny little minute. Yet eternity is in it. And that poem was made popular by Benjamin E. Mays, but it was written years ago by a priest. And when you think about the metaphor for God's minute, this minute in your life and what it is, what we do with the love that we've been, that is in, that we've been entrusted with. 
the love for our ancestors, the love for our elders. All of that, I am able to express all of that because of the love that Lavinia Flagg and Wilkes Flagg had for each other. Because of his belief in a better future. So when I say I am the manifestation of their blood, sweat, tears, their prayers, their cries, and their love. And to be able to continue to extend that. And I don't know how many people in here know a lot about my great-grandfather, but I'm going to read a little bit about him. He was born in Virginia in 1802. Wilkes Flagg was the slave of Dr. Thomason Ford, who was purchased along with his mother, Sabina, from the Lamar Plantation on Little River. A skilled blacksmith, he was allowed to work in the blacksmith shop after his normal working day and was taught to read and write and to keep accounts by the Fort children. The blacksmith shop was located in the first block of North Wayne Street on the west side, in the middle as shown on the 1884 Sanborn Fire Insurance Map. Reverend Flagg founded Flagg Chapel Baptist Church in 1830, the original Flagg Chapel Baptist Church on Franklin Street was built during reconstruction on his land. It stood there until 1973 when a fire destroyed it during an extensive renovation. Earning money from his extra work, he purchased his freedom and the freedom of his wife Lavinia and their son Wilkes Jr. who was born around 1830. The family listed as free in the 1850 federal census consisted of Reverend Flagg, his wife Lavinia, and son Wilkes B, age 19. In addition to the blacksmith shop, Reverend Flagg was a polished, proficient head waiter for the governors, Lumpkin to Brown, at state dinners. After the first civil, after the civil war, Reverend Flagg and Lavinia Robinson Flagg legitimized their marriage on September 16, 1865 in Milledgeville. He was a very active leader during Reconstruction. Reverend Flagg helped the destitute blacks in the community he acquired a sharecropping lease on a 1,100 plus acre plantation at Camp Creek on which he established a colony and grew cotton. He amassed a considerable fortune, including several animals and equipment. Unfortunately, most of his wealth was lost to creditors after his death in 1878. Reverend Flagg established a school for the blacks, for the blacks at Flagg Baptist Church. Soon after, the school came to the attention of Reverend Hiram Edie of the American Missionary Society. Reverend Flagg died at the age of 78 on November 13, 1878, and is buried on the grounds of his beloved Flagg Chapel Baptist Church. Lavinia Flagg died after 1900 in Milledgeville and is buried beside her husband. And so when you think about what it must have taken for them to be able to stay together during that time. And although they were married before then, they reestablished that marriage in 1865. And the love of the land, when we talk about the evidence of the love, my mother is an activist as well, has always been an activist and has always fought for the land and the people. So when we talk about the evidence of who they are, then my mother continues to walk that walk. And she has even shared, has given me and several others <laughs> in my family that mission. But she, my mother actually fought. Um, they tried to establish a, um, 
hazardous waste facility in Hancock County. And my mother started the Center for Community Development and fought that hazardous waste facility all the way to the Supreme Court twice and won. And so for her to be who she is and the things that she has instilled in me and my brothers and sisters, I know that it has to be because of what was instilled in her. So we talk about these traits and the, the lineages that we come from. We think about what that love must have been like during that time. And the love, that's why I said molecular memories of love and freedom. Love of the land, love of, of the people. So I just wanted to take a moment today and share that with you all. I appreciate your attention. I appreciate your time. And you all continue to have a wonderful evening. That was Vicki Glover sharing the story, Molecular Memories of Love and Freedom, about her ancestors Wilkes and Lavinia Flagg. We're going to close our program with another story about connections. Jeanette Waddell is the master of ceremonies and organizing force behind this monthly storytelling concert series. Tonight, she's sharing a cautionary tale about the importance of connections and what can happen when you discount them. This is Jeanette Waddell with the story, All Things Are Connected. This story is called All Things Are Connected. It's an African folktale. Well, there was a king, a very powerful king, and he was accustomed to all of his advisors doing what he asked them to do and agreeing with whatever he suggested. If he said, I'd like to build a staircase to the sky, all of the advisors except one would say, King, that is a great idea. When would you like us to get started? But the one advisor would always say to him, all things are connected. And that absolutely made no sense to the king whatsoever. The king was bothered at night by frogs. It seems like no matter how much he stuffed his ears, the frogs, they croaked all night long. He could never get any sleep. Not only were they disturbing him, they were disturbing the entire village. So he said to his advisors, those frogs are more than I can stand. We really need to get rid of all those frogs. And his advisor said, oh king, if the frogs are disturbing you, we need to get rid of all the frogs. But his one advisor said to him, king, all things are connected. And the king said, can't you ever say anything else? Can't you ever agree with me like the rest of my advisors? And he looked and he said, King, all things are connected. So the next night it was the same thing. And the night after that, and the night after that, and finally the king ordered his soldiers to go out and kill all of the frogs. Now, of course, they couldn't do this in one day. 
or two days or three days, there were a lot of frogs. But finally, all the frogs were gone. And it was quiet. The king had a very good night's sleep. And for about a week, things were going very well. But by day number seven, while the king was peacefully sleeping, he heard a buzzing in his ear. And it buzzed around his head, all around the room. The king went back to sleep and he forgot all about it. Well, the next night, it wasn't just one buzzing mosquito. There were many buzzing mosquitoes. And the next night and the next night, there were more and more and more buzzing mosquitoes. So the king went back to his advisor and said, you got rid of all the frogs, but now we have all these mosquitoes. What are we going to do? Can you kill all the mosquitoes? And his advisor said, King, whatever you say. But the one advisor said, King, all things are connected. When you came to us and said, get rid of all the frogs, I told you, all things are connected. The frogs ate the mosquitoes. And now that we have no frogs, there are no natural enemies for the mosquitoes. And the mosquitoes began to multiply and multiply and multiply until people began to move away from the village. Family by family left and moved to another area. And finally, there was only the king left in the village. Even his advisors had left. And the king finally said to himself, if only I had listened to my one advisor who said all things are connected. Now I understand, I truly understand what he means. So even the king finally left the village. Even to this day, there are so many mosquitoes in that village that no one can live there. All things are connected. That was Jeanette Waddell sharing the story, All Things Are Connected. Her story was a part of the storytelling concert, Finding Wisdom in Unusual Places, which was recorded live at the Allen's Market in April 2017. If you enjoyed our program, please consider coming out for our next live event when we share stories about those women who have been like mothers to us. Join us for celebrating our other mothers. That will take place 2 p.m. Sunday, May 28th at the Allen's Market Building in downtown Milledgeville. Stories from the Market is a co-production of the Milledgeville Allied Arts, storyteller Jeanette Waddell, and WRGC 88.3 FM. Tonight's program was produced for radio by yours truly, Daniel McDonald. I want to thank you for spending a portion of your evening with me here on Stories from the Market. I hope you enjoyed our time together, and I want you to know I look forward to hearing you soon.